0: Welcome back to Whose Crime Is It Anyway? I'm Shell. And I'm Lisa. And we're back. And I'm back from my spring break.
1: She's back. (laughs) Are you happy to have me? (laughs) Yeah, it's felt like so long. I really missed you.
0: I missed you too. It was a, a needed break, but I'm happy to be back.
1: We're happy to have you back. Yeah, I needed a little space while I moved. It's a lot of work moving, man. Like, I hate, I can't imagine. Imagine moving an entire house, not just an apartment.
0: I don't know how my parents moved their gigantic house and downsized. I don't even get how that's possible. Yeah, it's the worst. Just my, like, apartment, moving it, and then combining stuff is always a bit of a challenge. I know, Our place is getting there. We've been redoing our kitchen and ordering new furniture and Yeah, I love what you've done so far. Yeah, it looks good. Steve did a lot of work, so I have to hand it to him. I I just designed it. I just helped with the aesthetics. The vision. Yeah, the vision, exactly. Happy to be back though. Yeah. Back in kits. Back in kits. And back with whose crime? (laughs) (laughs) Feels good. So this week, we're doing something a little bit different. Lisa and I are both going to share a survival story. And I think this is awesome. We haven't done this before. And survivor stories always get me in the feels. Like, it, they're very emotional mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Because it you go through something terrible, something so traumatic, and come out on the other side. It's
1: remarkable. Right. And they live to tell their story. And you see how they've moved forward. And yeah. able to overcome it it's just it's crazy it's heavy but it's worth listening to these stories so Mm -hmm. let's dive in in a small town in manitoba in 1990 two teenage boys are watching a spy thriller on tv when there's a knock at the door they had no idea that what was about to happen would be so much worse than any movie they had ever watched When they opened the door, they came face to face with a high school classmate who decided to bring death to their doorstep. This is the murder of Curtis Clausen and the survival story of Tyler Pelkey. Take it away, girl.
0: In the small Mennonite community of Altona, a town in southern Manitoba, Tyler Pelkey and his friend Curtis Clausen were watching a movie at Tyler's house. They were watching The Hunt for Red October. It's a spy thriller from the 90s starring Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin.
1: I've never heard of it.
0: Never heard of it,
1: never seen it. You know what, that's a shocker that I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it is actually, Coming especially from the movie. a movie. <laughs> yeah, the movie buff that I claim to be, yeah.
0: So it's November 17th at this point in 1990 and the two teenage boys were hockey lovers as most Canadians who grow up in the prairies are. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well also all Canadians I feel like.
1: All Canadians. (laughs) Not not just
0: the prairies. Yeah. (laughs) They were both on the same hockey team, fellow goaltenders, and they were one year apart. Tyler was 14 and Kurt was 15. They had just attended a hockey event with the rest of their teammates. Again, the two of them loved hockey. After the party, Tyler and Kurt decided to hang out and watch a movie. Relax, kick back, shoot the shit. Tyler's mother was away that weekend on a work trip, so the boys were happy to stay up late with the house to themselves. Free reign, baby. Exactly. I loved that when I was a kid. Same. They had no idea that their lives were about to become worse than the spy thriller they were watching. It would become a horror film. There was about 2,000 people who lived in Altona in 1990, and it was part of the Bible Belt of the province. So it was a community where everyone knew everyone. Like, Mm 2,000 people, that's not a big town. It's tiny. It's tiny. So, you know, you knew your neighbors, it was Mm -hmm. safe. Mm -hmm. no one locked their doors classic so when a knock came at Tyler's back door that evening the two boys thought nothing of it Tyler opened the door to see one of their high school classmates Earl Giesbrick standing there he knocked on their back door yeah the back door he didn't come to the front he came to the back weird Earl was older than the two boys He was 17, a senior, and he showed up to the Pelkey house dressed in all black with a menacing look. This was a boy that Tyler and Kurt wanted nothing to do with. Earl was known around school to be different. He was manipulative and cold. Earl said to the boys that he was breaking into homes in the area, so that's why he came to the back door.
1: But he knocked.
0: Yeah, he knocked, but he came to the back door because he's, like, running through yards. Okay. I don't know if his, like, initial plan was to tell them and then get them to join to him To join or something. him, yeah. Like, let's go. Yeah, I'm not sure. But he held up a large duffel bag. When Tyler asked what was inside, Earl said, "...the tricks of the trade." So he pulled out a 357 caliber Magnum handgun from the bag and held it up, almost like a threat, and then he put it back inside the bag. There were also rubber gloves, tape, and tools in the duffel, the items Earl was using for his break-ins around town.
1: What do you need tape for? Why would you need tape for a break-in? That's a good
0: question. No. So it was late, and Tyler suggested that Earl should leave. But he kind of provoked Earl into responding. And Earl pulled out the gun that he had previously shown them, and he held it at the two boys. So this is not good at this
1: point. So now he's pointing the gun at them. Now
0: he's pointing the gun right at them. So Earl forces Tyler to tie Kurt up at gunpoint using hockey tape. Earl then tied Tyler up himself, putting hockey tape over his eyes, and he separated the two boys into different rooms in the Palky house. Fuck. This was the last time that Tyler would see Kurt. Oh no. When Earl came back from the other room for Tyler, he told him that Kurt was dead. Then, he sexually assaulted Tyler multiple times and then told him to kneel down and turn around so he could cut the tape off of his hands. Tyler's eyes were still covered by tape at this point, Mm -hmm. but he thought for a moment that he would be spared and set free. But he was not. Out of nowhere, Earl took a kitchen knife, pulled Tyler's head back and sliced his throat.
1: Oh my god.
0: It's awful. This is like teenagers we're talking about. 17-year-old oh. is doing this to a
1: 14-year-old. It's insane. They're kids. Fuck. That kind of reminds me of um the fucking colonel that I did the case on. Russell Williams. Russell Williams, remember he thought he told her that she, he was going to let her go and yeah. he let her walk in front of him and then just killed her from behind thinking that she was leaving and f- set free. Yeah, it's like
0: giving them a chance to feel like they're going to get out of this. Right. And then...
1: What a game.
0: Yeah, it, it is. That's it's, fucked. A, it's a game. It's so crazy to me that a 17-year-old can... Is capable of that? Is capable of it and of doing it and of thinking it. It's just, it's wild. Mind-blowing. So miraculously, Tyler was still alive after this. Oh my god. So he actually tried to play dead, but Earl was not taking any chances. He set multiple fires in the house, and then he doused a blanket in kerosene and threw it on top of Tyler's body. Whoa. Then he lit it on fire and left the two teenage boys in the house to burn. So Kurt was in the other room, though. Was he hurt as well? So as far as Tyler knows at this point, Kurt is dead. He thinks he's dead. Yes. Okay. The house is on fire at this point. Tyler's burning under this blanket soaked in kerosene and his throat <sighs> is slit. It's Jesus. just it's crazy. In another miracle, Tyler somehow escaped his burning home. He's <gasps> he's bleeding, he's burned,
1: but he's still alive. Wow. So he's escaped from the house now. He's out of the
0: house. Basically, what he said in an interview is that he thought this was the end, that he was going to die, and then there was a voice in his head that said, like, get up and move. And so he did. Wow. It's just crazy. So he went to a neighbor's house next door, and his hands are still taped behind his back at this point, and he's unable to speak. Like, he tries to speak, and just nothing is coming out because his throat is slashed.
1: Right, right.
0: The neighbor immediately put a towel on Tyler's neck to halt the bleeding and then gave him a pen and paper to write down what happened and who was responsible. Tyler wrote down Earl's name.
1: Wow. Okay, but why would Earl want to do this? Did he have beef with the two guys? Like you said that they kind of didn't really care for Earl in the first place. What was his motive? From what I can
0: tell, Earl was always just a bit different. So he was abused and sexually assaulted as a child, and he was bullied in high school for being gay. So he saw the hockey boys, Tyler and Kurt, as representing those bullies, and he thought that they should
1: pay for it. But they weren't bullies to him.
0: Well, apparently there were some, like, derogatory comments that were made or in passing maybe Tyler or Kurt at one point or another said something to him that didn't sit well with him. Okay. But it wasn't, like, an outward... Like, they weren't making his life a living hell. No, 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 no. It wasn't, like, you know, obscene bullying that would be, like, very, very detrimental. You know, they're kids. Like, I remember people being bullied, like, or things being said to me that aren't nice, but you don't go out and murder them for it. No. And we can acknowledge that Earl experiencing child abuse and being bullied is awful, but there are several people who experience trauma and they don't become murderers. Exactly. Like, it's it's not an excuse to take a life. No. So during his trial... Earl testified that Tyler and Kurt made fun of him at one point at a school dance, and after that, he continued to have revenge fantasies about killing them. Wow. So his lawyer tried to argue that Earl was not criminally responsible because of a mental disorder, pleading insanity. What was the disorder? Well, mental illness, basically saying that he was out of his mind and wasn't making the correct choices. Yeah. But the jury didn't buy that. Earl was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of 15-year-old Curtis Clausen and the attempted murder of Tyler Pelkey. Even as a 17-year-old, Earl was tried as an adult with no chance of parole for 25 years until 2015. Whoa. Yeah, like it was a pretty heavy sentence because in Canada, if you're tried as a juvenile, you get parole after 10 years. Mm Mm-hmm. I watched a CBC documentary about this murder in Altona and the guidance counselor at the boys high school was actually scared to say anything about Earl because she was scared that he would hear about it and then when he got out of prison in 25 years would come after her.
1: Okay, but isn't it like your moral responsibility as a counselor to help the people that need the help? Like, fuck this guy. I would say so, like for sure. But I
0: mean, I was just thinking of it in a way that this was definitely someone who was feared even by adults. Yeah. And probably isolated from friends and social groups at school, which could escalate his behavior. But it doesn't seem like he was getting any help or, you know, like you said, this guidance counselor, I mean, she seems afraid of him, but she's not like doing anything
1: for him. Yeah. Do your job.
0: I think that there's opportunities when this type of behavior is escalating or people see it to call it out. But I guess, you know, this is 1990 Mm -hmm. and it's a really, really small town, very Christian, like full on Mennonite, the entire community. So, you know, they're probably placing like their faith in God to make sure that everyone stays safe. Right. So it's been 31 years since Kurt's murder and Tyler's escape from death. It took Tyler a long time to accept that he was alive when his friend wasn't. And although his scars stayed with him, this experience did not break Tyler's spirit. He went on to become a firefighter and now lives in Red Deer. He's also a motivational speaker and shares his survival story with people across the country.
1: That's amazing.
0: It's amazing. I mean, you basically were left to be burned alive, Ugh. and you become a firefighter to save others. Like you're it's saving people.
1: It's pretty beautiful, and to you know be a public speaker about that, too, overcoming that trauma, to be able to speak out loud about it as well. Yes,
0: I mean that takes a lot of bravery. Yeah. So a because lot of he was fourteen, in Canada, essentially, your like anyone's name when they're a uh, juvenile is essentially kept from the press yeah it's a publication ban
1: yeah remember
0: jasmine richardson who was 12 like she would she would only be referred to as jr right but tyler is basically because he's so open and wants to talk about what happened to him he's just waived that and said like you can include my name in the press right but an interesting development has happened in the last year Three decades later, Tyler's attacker Earl is walking free. I don't like hearing that. Last year, in 2020, Earl was granted full parole, allowing him to serve the rest of his sentence in the community. He has to report regularly to his parole officer and is under no circumstances allowed back to Altona or to get in contact with the Pelkey or Clausen families. Tyler actually met with Earl face-to-face while he was in prison through the restorative justice program, and Mm -hmm. Earl accepted responsibility for what he had done. Okay. Although Tyler isn't happy about Earl being out on parole, he has learned to forgive. It's honestly so much strength to move on from this and to put this behind you. I mean, it's obviously never out of his vision because Mm -hmm. he has burns over his body so he sees those every day
1: Mm -hmm. but
0: yeah it's it's just it's tragic but I definitely am amazed at how he's come out of this like he speaks so well in any of the videos that I watched he just is so well spoken and open and willing Mm -hmm. to discuss the details of what happened to him like to relive that so many times
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I mean it Takes a lot of bravery, I
1: can, I, I imagine. Oh, yeah. Okay, so did they ever find out what actually did happen to Kurt, though? So the details of Kurt's death
0: haven't really been released to the public. I mean, he was, you know, 15 when it happened. So I did find some reports that say that he died from blood loss due to his throat being cut, similar to what Earl tried to do to Tyler. Okay. and. Some say that Earl tried to actually strangle Curtis at first with a cord, but then it broke, so he turned to a knife instead. The thing about the knife though is that Earl's knife when he went to cut Tyler's throat missed Tyler's jugular vein by the width of a dime. Like, whoa. The smallest width. If he had gone up a little bit more, he would have been dead.
1: That's like a centimeter. Yeah.
0: Holy shit. crazy. Tyler has burns still to this day that cover 25% of his body. And at the time, he needed over 200 stitches while he was in the hospital. And for a brief moment, his heart actually stopped. So to be able to confront a person that tried to kill you is remarkable. And then to forgive them even more so. Like, Tyler survived death and... He continues to make a difference in the world, inspiring others and saving lives by being Mm -hmm. a firefighter. Mm -hmm. It gets just, it's amazing to me. I, anytime I read about I survived stories, Mm -hmm. it just hits me how resilient we can be as humans. But time doesn't heal all scars. Although this is the story of how Tyler survived, Curtis Clausen did not. He was senselessly murdered, but Tyler continues to honor his friend's memory whenever he shares his story. And with that, we are no longer wondering, whose crime is it anyway?
1: I feel like you and I were kind of channeling each other when we were researching our cases. Oh, really? Because I've got another one here for you that is on the same level. Oh, okay. I'm excited to hear it. So... What's your first reaction when you get an unexpected ring from your apartment buzzer or a knock on your door? (laughs) I look through the people, (laughs) But like literally, who's there? Yeah, literally every time. Stranger danger immediately, right? Yes. And obviously every time, it's fine. But that's exactly how my story today begins, except this knock on the door was far from what you would ever expect. Oh my god, a knock at the door! I know. What the heck? We were
0: channeling each other. When a teenage boy accepts a painting job, he is quickly kidnapped, held captive, and tortured for days before he finally manages to escape. But that meant his captors were on the loose. This is the survival of the Nova Scotia boy. Take it away, girl!
1: This case was told to me by someone I've known for years who grew up in Nova Scotia. On September twenty-fourth, two 2012, at around 7 p.m., my friend's mom, Alice, was at home by herself when she heard pounding at her front door. Alice was 78 at the time, so imagine that. Oh, jeez, yeah. I would yeah. probably no, shit myself.
0: Yeah, pounding. Like, if someone's pounding at my front door, I'm worried. Oh, immediately.
1: So Alice goes to the front door and looks out the window. She sees a teenage boy wearing a hoodie, naked from the waist down, no shoes, and is shackled with chains on his wrists and ankles. What? Oh my god.
0: I just don't even know what I would do. I know. I mean, obviously, like, try to help this kid.
1: I mean, like, but at the same time, you're, like, scared. Of course. And you're by yourself. Yeah. So Alice speaks to him through the window, and the boy says that he had been kidnapped and he had escaped from a house about 2 kilometers down the road where he had been held captive. He begs Alice to let him in, but in all fairness, Alice was by herself and feared for her own safety. So she said no, but that she would call the police for him. The boy said no, and that calling the police would make it worse. So by the time Alice called the police and came back to the window, the boy was gone. Oh no. Why was he so afraid of the
0: police?
1: He was afraid of drawing attention to the house where his captors would maybe find him. He didn't want to draw attention to where he had run to. Right. He wanted to stay hidden. Yes. A few minutes later, Alice's neighbor Terry heard banging on his front door. Terry opened the door to find the half-naked boy in chains begging him for help. Terry gave the boy clothes and cut off the padlocks on the chains. The boy told Terry that he had been held captive by two men for several days while they sexually assaulted him and threatened to kill him. The boy said he tried to escape once but they caught him and brought him back inside. This time the two men had left him alone at the house momentarily and it was then that the boy threw himself through a boarded-up window in the house and managed to escape. Oh my god. How old is this boy? Do we know yet? 16 years old. Oh my god. He ran down the gravel road barefoot for almost two kilometers, which was when he came across Alice's house. Terry also offered to call the police, but the boy was so afraid of being caught by these men again and didn't want to draw any attention. The boy was 16 years old, so his name is protected by a publication ban. He asked Terry to drive him to Bridgewater, which was about 30 minutes away, so he did. And it was sometime after that that the boy did file the report with the Nova Scotia police. Now, to paint a picture of this area, Alice and Terry lived in Upper Chelsea, Nova Scotia, which is located about... 125 kilometers west of Halifax. It's a pretty secluded area with vast, dense forests and gravel roads where properties were so spaced out you couldn't even see your neighbor's house. The boy reported that he had been living on the streets in Halifax when he was offered a painting job by a man in a van. The boy agreed and got in the van and they drove off towards Upper Chelsea with the understanding that they were going to pick up some supplies. But they were not. So, at this point, I guess I was thinking, you know, where are the
0: boy's parents? Or like, where's his family? Are they contacting his family? But if he was on the street, I guess that makes a little bit more sense. Do
1: we know why he was on the street? Um, I'm not entirely sure, but it was just like this period in his life where he was he was living on the street. Really yeah, I don't really know the details of it. Okay the man who picked him up was 47 year old david leblanc who is currently out on bail and awaiting trial for making and distributing child porn sexual assault and sexual interference this guy is on the street he's on parole yeah like yeah why yeah waiting for his fucking trial why is he even out on bail yeah LeBlanc took the boy to a run-down wooden cabin at 174 Fulker Road, where a 31-year-old man named Wayne Cunningham was waiting. The two men took him inside the cabin, tied chains to his wrists and ankles, and tied all four limbs to a bed where he was repeatedly sexually assaulted and raped. During his captivity, he recalled being blindfolded with a black sleeping mask and heard a third man enter the cabin. He was able to see slightly out of the bottom of the mask and could see that it was an older, overweight man wearing glasses. This man joined Cunningham on the bed while the two of them engaged in sexual acts with each other and performed oral sex on the boy while he lay there crying and unable to move. After a few minutes, the man left and the boy overheard LeBlanc and Cunningham talking about selling the boy to the black market. Oh my god, this is horrifying. This is so awful. Holy shit. I know. This was when the boy tried to escape for the first time and when the two men threatened to kill him if he tried to do it again. When the police were notified, they arrived to the rundown cabin to find it empty. The forensics team got to work while a national manhunt began on LeBlanc and Cunningham. A few days went by until police found the car belonging to Cunningham on a remote logging road about 260 kilometers northeast of Thunder Bay in Ontario. Well, they're on the move, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. They know that (laughs) they're being hunted. We gotta go. Yeah. It was a 2003 Hyundai Elantra. Then about 250 meters away from the car, police found Cunningham's deceased body. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. Cunningham was a diabetic and needed two insulin injections a day, which also needed to be refrigerated. Police said they didn't believe foul play was involved, so perhaps this was just a result of severe hypoglycemia. I
0: guess, yeah, if you don't have your insulin and it's, you don't really have access to a fridge when you're on the run.
1: Yeah. After about a week, police received a phone call from someone who saw a man stumbling around a logging road area in near-freezing weather. It was LeBlanc, and he was only five kilometers away from where Cunningham's body was found. LeBlanc was still alive, but he was suffering from hypothermia and was taken to the hospital where he ended up losing several toes from frostbite. Oh, I feel so bad for him. Your your poor toes. Yeah, little stub foot. (laughs) leblanc and cunningham had been in a relationship for several years and had a criminal record together for multiple thefts the two of them had fled the cabin once they realized the boy had escaped and ended up in the area of long which is about a 26 hour drive from upper chelsea in nova scotia so that's how oh, far they wow. went yeah they went far yeah once leblanc was cleared from the hospital in ontario he was flown back to nova scotia where he was held in custody And during his trial, he pled guilty to kidnapping, forcible confinement, sexual assault, uttering threats, and breach of conditions, and was sentenced to 11 years in prison. Only 11, hey? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Seems like not enough time. I know. For the abuse that he caused this boy. I know. So, okay, what about the third guy that came in? that the boy saw through his blindfold the one
1: that was like overweight with glasses well they caught him too oh they did Mm -hmm. sweet they searched through cunningham's text message history and found conversations between him and a man named john mckean a married man in his early 60s with two children he had met cunningham at alcohol anonymous meetings the texts between the two men made it very clear that the boy was being sold for sexual favors to McKean. McKean's texts to Cunningham ask him if everything was a go. And Cunningham replied, quote, oh, yes, sexy. Oh. McKean then asks, quote, looking forward to it, do you have a pick? Oh,
0: my god. This is disgusting. It's so
1: gross. Cunningham responded with, quote, I would rather not send a pic. You will see tomorrow. McKean pled not guilty, stating that he didn't know that the boy was underage or that he was being held against his own will. Oh, bullshit. 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 And he said that if he had known, he would have helped the boy leave, stating that he was disgusted when he learned the truth of the situation during his interrogation.
0: No, I'm not buying any of that. He was shackled to the bed, blindfolded,
1: and he He was was crying the entire time. He was crying. He was not there willingly. No.
0: No. That is such a lie.
1: It's bullshit. McKean paid Cunningham to have 15 minutes with the boy and admitted to touching the boy's genitals, but stated he did not perform oral sex on the boy. His DNA was found on the boy and on the bed that he was chained to. John McKean was sentenced to two years in prison. Two? Two. But hear me out. For sexual assault, rape, and prostitution of a person under the age of 18. But only two months into his sentence, he died at the age of 65 of natural causes.
0: Okay. I mean, I'm sorry, but... You had
1: it coming. That's
0: a little bit of
1: karma for you. A little bit of freaking karma. Yeah. I was
0: going to say two years. Like, no uh, way. That yeah. is nothing. That's Not That's nothing. Shit.
1: During LeBlanc's trial, the boy's mother spoke. She said, quote, "'You have robbed me of my son and made a hole in my heart. "'You have no idea what it is like to look on the face of my son "'and see nothing but a shell of his former self.' She read his victim statement that said, quote, You have no idea how painful it is to fall asleep while being chained. The, oh my God. Mm, the boy is now 25 years old, lives with PTSD, and has an ongoing fear of being kidnapped again. He has a long road of healing ahead of him, but he is still reminded daily with the permanent scars left on his wrists and ankles. In August 2015, The run-down cabin was suspiciously burned down to the ground. No one knows who did it, but to be honest, it's a relief for them to see it gone.
0: Yeah, good riddance. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it was him that burned it. As a part of the healing. Totally. Like, honestly, then he never has to see it again. Yeah. I can't believe it.
1: That is a gut-wrenching story. Awful. And it's tough to get a whole lot of details as well because there is a publication ban so a lot of the information attached to the case is just not released
0: yeah and i mean especially something so traumatic for a young kid Mm -hmm. can make sense that it's sealed Mm -hmm. but yeah that's so awful and that didn't happen very long ago 10 years ago yeah wild Mm -hmm. well i'm really glad that he escaped and that he is Okay. Could you
1: imagine throwing your body through a boarded up window? Like, that would fucking hurt, man. It would
0: so, it would hurt so bad. And, you know, you have to, like, he was fighting for
1: his life. Yeah, the adrenaline.
0: Yeah, like, he knew that he needed to escape. Mm -hmm. And because he was on the streets and homeless at the time, there probably wasn't anyone looking for him. Right. They probably had no idea he was gone. Yeah, like probably had no idea. And so he he had himself to save. Like he knew that this was No one's coming for me. No one's coming. I have to save myself. Yeah, it's gutting. Heavy stories, but you know, with good outcomes. Yes. The people were caught and
1: the survivors survived, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. So with the bravery of a young 16-year-old boy and two criminals behind bars. We are no longer wondering, whose crime is it anyway? Thanks so much for listening to
0: another episode of Whose Crime Is It Anyway? We recently hit 20,000 downloads. So yes, and thank you so much for listening and following along with our true crime journey. Until next time, follow us on Instagram at Whose Crime Podcast and on Twitter
1: at Whose Crime Pod. And if you would like to support our show, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Whose Crime Pod. Bye, Toodles.
0: <laughs> I haven't done a bye in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Bye.